here today from the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to open up the book of Colossians. If you don't, you'll see on your uh, seat there, there is a breakdown of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 on your seat. Two sides of it. One is the Christian Standard Bible uh, version of it all, and on the back side is the message. We'll talk about the message later, but the Christian Standard ones that we're going to be going through this morning, as we're going through it, you'll see I left some gaps in between each line there. I would love for you to take some notes, because as we dive in today into Colossians chapter 1, we're in our third week, and we're going to do this in nine weeks. What I found as I went through this passage is every verse we talk about today could be its own sermon. And so uh, you can ask Christy, I was like, I am trying to make this as simple as possible. So my encouragement to you this week, my encouragement to you as you're reading, going through the book of Colossians, is to dig a little bit deeper into this. Because we're not going to go super deep today. We're going to look at some things. We're going to stick on the target because the target since the very beginning when we started this was we want Jesus at the core. We want Jesus at the center. That's what the series is about. So that's where our focus is going to be at today and every day. But even with that, there's so much more as we, excuse me, as we look at these passages. So I've left it there for maybe you to write a note down, to circle a word, to underline a word. Maybe you don't like writing in your Bibles. I don't know where you're at with that. But as you look, I would encourage you to highlight some things. And online, there are so many resources, so many commentaries. We used to be where you had to have a pastor's library of just shelves and shelves and shelves of stuff. Now you just type in the verse, and it brings up everything you need, everything you want. So I would encourage you to do that while you're reading through that. Our first week, we dove into why Jesus must be at the center. And as he's at the center, he changes everything else about our lives. And as he changes everything else about our lives... We talked last week how he changes our prayer life and how he changes the way we pray and how we approach God. And this week, we're going to look at the way that we worship. Now, I got to clarify just for a second what worship is. Because a lot of times we think worship is when we come in here and we meet together and this is a corporate worship setting. This is where we come together and we praise God together. But worship is our life. And what we do with our life tells us what we worship and where we spend the most time, where we spend the most money, where we spend the most effort. That is the things that we worship. And so how Jesus at center is, uh, or having Jesus at center should change the way that we worship. But that's a battle every day. A battle every day. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this as we talked about having Jesus at center, but that in itself is a battle. I was thinking that we should totally deck out this whole stage with like sandbags and I should wear military fatigues and we should have like guns in a giant tank over here in the corner. It would be awesome, wouldn't it? And I know there are churches that do that. Um, there are churches that, that, that go way overboard and that's a good thing to kind of help us hold on to things and sometimes that can also be a distraction where we get a little bit too much and a little bit too much focus to say, hey, you should come to my church because we got a tank inside. I'm okay with that, but I'm better if you say, you should come to our church because we talk about Jesus. And so that would be my suggestion in all of that. And it's, it's interesting as we get into that because the battle really is, is where is the focus? Where do we have Jesus in our lives? Is he at the center or is he some peripheral thing that's over here off to the side? What is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And, you know, as we think about that, what do you think about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Because when we think about Jesus and when we really get down to the nitty-gritty of what we believe about Jesus, it's going to change or affect how we worship him. Is he the center or is he off to the side? 
where is he in your life? And you know, the crazy thing, as we read through the, the book of Colossians, maybe in your Bible you have titles. And it kind of breaks up sections. Well, the title we're in today either says in your Bible, the centrality of Christ or the preeminence of Christ. And in that preeminence, that's a word we don't use very often, but is one that we should use when it comes to Christ. The word preeminence means to, to be the highest rank. Now, there's another word that we like to use when it comes to Jesus in our own lives, and that is prominent. I have a question for you. What's the difference between prominence and preeminence? And in our lives, where should Jesus fall in that? See, the word prominent means to be famous or to stand out or to get noticed. More or less, what we are doing, you're saying that if you're prominent, you're in my top five. Preeminent means number one. It means the highest rank, the most important thing, but not just the most important thing in ranking, but also the most important thing in influence. Where is Jesus in your life? Is he prominent? Is he something that gets noticed? Or is he preeminent, which means he is number one and he has the most influence in your life? See, our goal as a church, if you break it right down to it, if, if you take the vision, you take the mission, you take our goals, and you bottle them all up in just a couple of words and keep it as simple as you possibly can. Our goal is to see more people become more like Jesus. That's it. So we want to move from Jesus just being prominent in our lives to Jesus being preeminent in our lives. We want to see that in us, and as we see that in us, we want to see it in our lives, and we want people to say, there's a difference there. And you might think, well, really, is there that much difference between being prominent and preeminent. Well, let's, let's, let's just put it into a different relationship. If you're married and you said, my spouse is prominent in my life. They're like top five. How's that going to go over for you? Exactly. Exactly. It's not going to work. Preeminence means they have the highest strength and the most influence. And we need that with Jesus. And at some point in time in our lives, we are going to come to the place of realization that this life is all about Jesus. That our death will all be about Jesus. And everything in between the beginning and the end of this life will all be about Jesus. And it's up to us on whether we submit to it now or we get to submit to it later. When it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So where are we with that? A.W. Tozer, as my buddy Bob back here calls him, an old dead guy, said this in, a, in, a, in, a, in an essay he wrote. said, the present position of Christ in the gospel churches may be likened to that of a king in a limited constitutional monarchy. The king is, in such a country, no more than a traditional rallying point, a pleasant symbol of unity and loyalty, much like a flag or a national anthem. He is lauded, vetted, and supported, but his real authority is small. Nominally, he is head over all, but in every crisis, someone else makes the decision. Is that the way he is in our lives? Is that the way he is in our church, like a king in some monarchy that doesn't really matter, but he sure looks good and calling the head, but everything else is decided by other people? Or is he the preeminent one? See, everything finds its meaning and significance in Christ. And, and honestly, my prayer is, is that I find that sooner or later and that you find that sooner or later. 
that we come to the realization of who Jesus is. And we talked about it last week. It's not that we have to make him Lord. It's not that we have to make him preeminent. He already is. It's whether or not we submit to that and how we choose to live our lives. And as we look at that now, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Like I said, there is so much information in this passage. And I'm going to go through it as best I can, cover the things that, that really are in there. But what I want to challenge you to do, once again, is this week, take this paper, take your Bible, and sit down and get deeper into it. Feed yourselves. You know, the, Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep, right? And when Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep, a lot of people think, well, that's why I go to church to get fed. Yes, but you can't survive on one meal a week. Feed yourselves. See, the whole idea of Jesus or telling Peter to feed his sheep is you don't have to hand feed a sheep. You lead him to a pasture and say, eat here. This is where I want you to eat from this week. Eat from this. Get deeper into it. Understand it. See the importance of the centrality or the preeminence of Jesus. Follow along as we read right here, starting in verse 15. We're going to read through verse 23, and then we're going to dive into each individual thing. Here it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, and if you underline things, underline that, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, you were not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to this church thousands of years ago. They got preserved that we could see it. And God, we struggle with the same thing that the church at Colossae struggled with, having outside influences tell us that Jesus isn't enough. Today, God, make it so real to us, whether we have known this forever or this is the first time we've ever heard it. Make it so real to us that we cannot deny the fact that your son is God and he is preeminent in our lives. And God, allow our hearts, our stubborn hearts, to submit to that fact. We pray that all in your name today, Lord. Amen. As we see Paul move from prayer last week, he moves into this what many think is, is a hymn or some sort of creed that was going on at the time that he took and he just re-emphasized it to the church of Colossae. And as he does that, he's really answering two very important questions in this. And the two very important questions are this. Who is Jesus and what did Jesus do? Not to be confused 
what, what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? And he's trying to help the, the church come alongside, because once again, they have these outside influences, all these teachings of, of Gnostic, uh, which means to know, and the, the, this Gnosticism says you, you can't just have Jesus, you have to have Jesus plus something else. And he says, that's not the case. And he's trying to lay out the case. Even for those who already know it, he's trying to lay out the case. This is what it's going to be. Who is Jesus? Well, verse 15 identifies two things about Jesus. First, that he is the image of the invisible God. And then second, that he is the firstborn of all creation. So what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Well, I think here's what we have to hold on to. We're going to make a very well-done statement right here. God is invisible. And you, that means you can't see him. That means we can't experience him. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that no one has been able to see God in John 1, 18 and 1 John 4, 12. And God even told Moses that anybody who sees me won't live. So how do we see Jesus? Why can't we see Jesus, or not Jesus, God? Why can't we see him? Is it because he doesn't exist, or is it because he's not real? No. What it is, is his infinite holiness doesn't allow us to see him. We cannot be in that company because we are sinners. And we also live in this finite 3D world that cannot comprehend everything that is God. And so what happens here is, is that Jesus comes into our time in our space when he puts on flesh. That incarnation, when he puts on the meat, it is him coming from the greatness of to be an image that we'd be able to see, that we'd be able to learn from, to be able to see in teaching and living and all of the things that take place. This is what it goes from. And it says, you know, we can ask ourselves why Jesus became a man. And I bet if I ask you that, why did Jesus become a man? My guess is you would tell me a correct answer in the fact that he came to die for our sins. But that's not the complete answer. See, he also came to reveal the Father to mankind. His death is extremely important to our lives. But so is his life, so is his nature, and so is his person. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He showed us what God is like. And that's important in our lives to understand that he is showing that. So who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God showing us what the glory of God looks like. He is God to man. And as we let that sink in, today we're talking about worship. How should that affect the way we worship? How should that affect the way it is in our lives? When we look at Jesus, Jesus is our Savior. But sometimes we kind of lessen that to a point of just Jesus is our Savior. And we're going to talk more about that as we get down into verse 20 and 21. But think about this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of the invisible God. And that should change the way we worship him. The second thing we're going to see here is that he's the firstborn of creation. Now, some people get confused in this, and some cults have actually taken this and said, well, see, Jesus is created. Because they just read that verse, and they fail to read the rest of it. You know, sometimes we pick and choose verses that we like, so we just hold on to those by themselves and forget that there's other verses around it that clarify what that actually means. This firstborn isn't about being firstborn as in first created. It means that he has the highest rank, the highest honor, and the most power of all things. 
that are created. He is over everything that has been created. So as we see it, we ask this question, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is supreme. He's the communication from God to man. He's saying, this is what God is like. And then he also says he is sovereign over all creation. He's the one that is firstborn. He's the one that, that has the power and the rank over all of creation. And when I use the word all, you know what all means? It means all, which means you and me in that. He has supremacy over us or that word preeminence over us. How should that affect the way that we worship? How should that affect the way that we live? That's the first question we have to look at as we look at who is Jesus. The second question is, is what did he do? What did he do? Well, verse 16 tells us what he did. And as we dive into verse 16, it's not only that Jesus is the full disclosure of God and that he existed before all creation, he also was the one who created everything that we see and we know. He created it all. Isn't that just mind-blowing to you and how that should change the way that we worship? And, and, and we look, look what verse 16 says. It says, for everything was created by him. And we learned that he is the creator. And if you skip ahead, you'll see the same thought repeated at the end of the verses is all things have been created through him and for him. Now, they may be the same thought, but there's two different parts to that. Actually, three different parts if you really look at it. First one is, it says, by him. Second one, it says, through him. And the third one says, for him. Well, by him means everything was created within his realm or sphere of influence. He had his hand and finger on everything that was being created. That should change the way we worship. Then it says, through him, which points that, that everything that is created owes its existence to Jesus. Not just did he have his finger, but it all went through him. It all through his approval, and, and it means everything should give him praise and glory. That things that are created, like you and me, should give him all praise and all glory because everything we have is because of him. Every breath we take is because of him. You ever thought about that? I mean, nobody ever thinks, man, I love every breath I take until you're underwater. Right? We, we don't think about the reality of things until it's taken away from us. When, when you can breathe through your nose, how many are suffering with allergies right now? And you go like, man, I wish my nose would just work. I wish my eyes would stop itching. When everything works in harmony, we don't think about it. But really stop and think about it. When it's in harmony and when it's not, it's all because Jesus has his finger in it all. It's all through him. And we look at that and we say, you know, nothing can exist outside of the realm of Christ. Nothing is apart from him. Nothing is able without his interaction, without his action. He made and owns everything. And he takes in the middle of that, between those two statements, the, the, the by him and through him, he talks about the everything. Paul breaks down the everything that is in there, in heaven and on earth, visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What does that mean? What's Paul trying to clarify here? That all is under the supremacy of Christ, that all is under the preeminence of Christ, that all is under Christ himself, and that all means all. That means the good and the bad. That means the, the, the greatest ruler on this planet and the worst ruler on this planet. That means you and me. It's all through him. Everything was made by him. Everything was made through him. And then it says everything was made for him. And I like that. When it says everything was made for him, what does that mean? Well, it all is there to do a purpose. It was all created for a purpose. 
just like if I was an artist, and I am not. I cannot paint. I cannot sing. I cannot do anything artsy. That is just the way that God blessed me. And, and, and in the reality of it all, but if I was able to paint, and you went up there and you're like, Matt, Matt, that is a great painting. Well, I did it for two reasons. One, for your pleasure, but also, second, for my glory. Let's just be honest. When an artist sings a song, they do it to share with the world, but they also get the glory out of it. When an artist paints a painting, they do it for the rest of the world, but they also so they get the glory out of it. That's why they put the captions in the bottom. It says, photo credited to, and then you get the name. It says, we want the glory out of it all. Well, think of it on a grand scale. Jesus created everything for everyone else, but at the same time, for his own glory, for him. Everything was made for him. Everything was created to give glory to Christ. Jesus is the image, the firstborn, the realm, the source, and the focal point. That's what Paul is trying to lay out here. Like I said, that's just the first two verses of what we're talking about today. I could close in prayer right now, and we could all be good. But we're not going to, so I need you to jump over to verse 17 now. And as we look at verse 17, we see that there's some things that are built up from verses 15 and 16 by identifying that, that Jesus is who he is, but he also holds everything together. He holds everything together. And, and what he's saying, he's first in our ranks, he's first in influence, and as he is, he holds our lives together because without Jesus, our lives fall apart. And I'm not sure if you've ever experienced that firsthand, that I don't have to teach you that because you can look back and go, oh yeah, you're right. But I have. When I try to do things on my own, guess what? Those plans fall apart. Without Jesus, everything falls apart. Look what it says here in verse 17. He is before all things, and by him, all things hold together. When we get down to the simplest part of Colossians, which is not a simple book, but as we read it and just look at it in simple form, Paul identifies who Jesus is, and then he helps us understand what our lives should look like as a result, what our lives should look like as a response. That's what Colossians is. That's what he's trying to do for us. So if it is true that all life falls apart without Jesus, what should we do? What should we say? What should we think in response to that? How should our lives look different? See, it says in verse 17, he is before all things. He is before all things. This, this points to Christ's eternal nature. He's tying it back to verse 15 and 16. As he ties it back, he's saying he is not created. He is existing before all things. He isn't just a time thing here either that he was before all things is also the fact a, a position or rank thing a source thing everything comes back to jesus and and i'm I, i'm telling you last night as i was studying this i just kept thinking man god make it as simple as possible for me to understand to communicate for everybody else to understand the same way because there's just so much here but i want you to see that with jesus as over creation he's before creation in time and source, it is so important to how we view him. Because often we just view Jesus as some side thing. This brings Jesus to the core. That he is everything, that he's over everything, that he is preeminent, and it needs to be in our lives as well. It goes on from there to say, by him all things hold together. If you look over at Hebrews chapter 1, it kind of has the same breakdown of Jesus. It says, he sustains all things by his powerful word. One thing we have to see in this is that those are present tense words. It's going on right now. He's holding everything together right now. He is sustaining everything together right now. He didn't just create 
and walk away. It's not like he made a clock and let that clock just tick and do its own thing. He is the power behind that clock. He is the one who, who is the energy and all the things that make that work. And he's what makes us work. He holds it all together. And as we look at that, we need to keep reminding ourselves why Paul wrote this. Why did Paul write this again? Wasn't it because there was this outside influence saying that it's Jesus plus these things you have to do if you want to get saved? Paul is making it very clear right here, right now, that it is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he's like, I want you to apply that to your life. Don't be distracted. As a matter of fact, we'll see that in verse 23. Don't be pulled away by all these other thinkings. And as we look at it, Paul's just with me for a second. It's God who provides. It's God who sustains and God who holds our lives together. Verse seven, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 17, verse 25 says, God gives all men life and breath and everything else. Everything we have is because of him. Everything we are is because of him. Can you stop and just think about that for a second? What do you have and who are you? And who got it that way? A lot of times we think it's me. Well, I did this education, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. No, Christ is before. He is over. He is the one that is holding it all together. That fact causes us to remember these things. If Christ is our sustainer and he's holding everything together, do we need to worry about tomorrow? No. As a matter of fact, he told us not to worry about tomorrow. Yet, are you thinking about anything tomorrow right this very moment? Maybe there's some things that are kind of popping in your head now that I said it out loud. Uh, my fault. Uh, so, so here's the thing. Does it cause you to give thanks every day for what you have? You know, in that prayer we talked about last week, your will be done. There's another verse in that same prayer from the Lord's Prayer. says, give thanks for our daily bread. When was the last time you thanked God for the daily bread that you have? For the things that, not just grace, not God, thanks so much for this meal that we're about to eat. Blessed to our bodies is only you can bless fried chicken. You know, that, that is not the, the thinking that we're supposed to be going to. It's God, you have given us everything that we could possibly need. It should cause us to thank him for everything that he feeds us, he provides us, he gives gifts, he allows us to use those gifts, he gives us friends, he gives us family. I mean, the list goes on and on. Do we give God thanks for those things? That's, that's a hard place to be. Just our life and just our breath. I mean, if we thank God for every breath, we wouldn't do anything else. But at the same time, are we thinking about that? Then verse 18 jumps in. It says, he also is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in, anything, in everything. And in that, maybe you have a, a different translation that actually says that he is a preeminence, that he will take the most important rank. And, and when we see that, we have to remember he's building up here. He talks about who Jesus is, that he's a creator of all things, that he holds all things together. And because of that, we should come to realize that he's also the head of the body, which is the church. And because of it all, he should have first place in all of our lives. But even as we look at that, what does the metaphor head of the church actually mean? Well, first thing it represents is leadership. Do you realize that maybe you do, maybe you don't? You ever gotten that pinch in your neck that is creating signal problems from here down to here and you walk a little bit funnier because it's not quite getting the message from the brain on how to actually operate? Imagine this, that the, the body doesn't want to listen to what the brain is doing. How's your body going to react? What's your body going to be able to do? 
Well, we see that same thing in the church. If we are not in connection with God, if we do not have that clear connection with Jesus who is the head, we're going to be doing our own thing and it's going to be a mess. Then the second thing we see is, is that the head represents life. Now, I've watched a lot of gory movies in my life. Not going to lie to you. But when somebody's head gets chopped off, guess what happens? They're dead. Yeah, you worked in the ER. You had anybody come in with a head in one basket and a body over here and say, can you put that back together? No, it's not going to work. There is no life that is there. And when the, the, when the, the, the church which is what Colossae is dealing with right here, right now, is separating Christ from the church, it's not going to go well. And Paul is trying to remind them that he is the head. But it also represents dependence. Dependence. We can't do it on our own. He's already kind of laid that out. He's already told us those things. But here's one of the other things he says. In this dependence, it is a two-way street. We are dependent on him, and I don't want to speak in such a way for you to think that God somehow is dependent on us, but he has chosen us to do his work. He has chosen the church to do his job. He is depending on us in just such a way that like a dad depends on his son to do something, and if he doesn't do it, he'll come along and take care of the business himself, but he'd like for the son to do that job, right Camden, right Peyton? That, 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 is, that is what we want to see happen. And we'll come along and there'll be some things. But in that, he is dependent saying, I would like for you to do this. We have a job to do. Christ gave us that job before he left. He said, this is your job to go, or as you're going, make disciples, baptize, teach them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, do these things. This is my command and challenge to you. It's not some if you want to thing. He is dependent on us to do these things. The question is, are we doing our part? And then he jumps in to say that he's the firstborn among the dead. What does that even mean? He's not the firstborn among the dead. If you look back at the, the kids that was raised in, in, uh, from the dead, the one that, that Jesus did, the Lazarus. I mean, you have all, all the ones that, that were before him. So what's that mean? Well, what it means is he's the first one that is raised from the dead and still lives. And that should give you hope, and that should give me hope, and that should change the way we worship. Because one day, I will be raised from the dead to live forever. All because Jesus was raised from the dead to live forever. And that should change the way that I live, and it should change the way that I act, and it should change the things that are important in my life. It should move him from prominence to preeminence. See, that's why it says, so that, might, that he might come to have first place in everything. And then you jump into verse 19 and 20, where it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Why do you think he says all his fullness? All of God's fullness is in Jesus. Why didn't he say part of his fullness is in Jesus? There's a, he's half full. It's because God is in Jesus. Jesus is God. He is the creator of all things. He doesn't need anything else for this salvation. Salvation is complete and found in Jesus Christ alone, not in all the other things we think we might have to do or might have to say or might have to do in, in such a way. It actually says that, and through him, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, the short simple here is, is the fullness of God dwells in him. And because the fullness of God dwells in him, we don't need anything else. We have Jesus. And he's trying to make that very clear to the church at Colossae, who's saying, well, we have Jesus, but there's no buts necessary. There's nothing else we have to wait for, because the fullness of God is in him. And then he jumps right down into verse 21 through 23. 
as a reminder. Let me remind you of where you came from and why this is so important, because you're starting to drift, and you're forgetting who you are, especially who you once were. He says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now. He has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him. See, verse 21, it says, once. What's once mean? Once. Way back when. Don't you remember before you met Jesus who you were? Once. At one point in time, your your past was ugly. Don't forget your past. Don't dwell in your past, but don't forget your past because I think we forget what Jesus saved us from. If I asked each and every one of you right now to think about the worst sin you've ever committed in your life, something just popped in your head. But then if I said, hey, by the way, you're going to get up here and share it with everybody else, now you got a little bit of sweat. You're like, I don't really want everybody to know all that stuff. Well, you know it. You know where you came from, and you know where Jesus met you at, which leads us to the next part. You were alienated which means you had a barrier between you and God. You were hostile, which means not only did you have a barrier between you and God, you were okay with that barrier between you and God, and that barrier actually caused you to have anger and a war. Remember that battle we were talking about, that the the battlefield we could have drawn out here on the stage? We're at war with God. He was our enemy. But then it goes in, how? How do we know that? Well, it was expressed in your evil actions. That's the weapons that we use to declare war on God, saying, I don't need a Lord in my life. I got this. I got it figured out. You can take your God and you can shove it. Maybe you've heard that before from an actual person's mouth. I have. And when we look at that and we say, man, what is that barrier? What happens with that? What what do we need to do? Well, C.S. Lewis paints the picture well in, in the book called Mere Christianity. He says, fallen man... It's not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who needs to lay down his arms. We need to submit. We need to lay down our arms, and that leads to those two next words. And there are some giant butts in the Bible. There's some great ones in there, and we can hold on to them. And as you see it, here's one right here where it says, but now. Once, but now. But now, the price was paid. You might remember your past. But now remember the price. What was that price? It was the death of that physical body. Going back to verse 20, the blood that was shed on the cross. It was a heavy price to pay. But you know what? We had a heavy debt that we owed. And he came in and he took that for us. For what purpose? Well, the rest of that verse says it. To present you holy and faultless and blameless before God. This right here is the goal. This right here is the purpose. This is the end game of the gospel, to present you as something you could never be without a great reconciled by the name of Jesus. We can't do it on our own. And and Paul is trying to tell us that. He's trying to tell the church of Colossae that. And he wraps up here in verse 23. It says, if indeed, that's a weird word, if. We'll talk about that here in a second. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. This is a heavy, heavy verse. This is one we could have easily spent a full Sunday, if not in two Sundays on. Because this one is one that, that people see sounds a little bit strange. If 
indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. Some translations say, if indeed you continue in the faith. This part of the passage has been argued about for 1,500 plus years. Today, I'm probably not going to help answer that argument for you. I'm just going to redirect your focus. See, because in the argument, people say, well, is Paul saying that you can lose your salvation if indeed you do these things, or if you don't, obviously the opposite is true? Is he saying something along the lines of works, salvation, you have to do these things in order to get saved? Well, of course he's not, because for the last how many verses he just said, it's Jesus plus nothing. So what exactly is he doing, and why is there such an argument about it? You know, here's what we need to see. Just a few words later. Paul says, do not shift from the hope of the gospel. What is the hope of the gospel? That we were once alienated, that we were once hostile, that we once were an enemy of God's, but now, because of Christ and His shed blood on the cross, we're not. That is the hope of the gospel, and that is going to lead us to be able to present it faultless and holy before a holy and faultless God. That is what this is all about. So why is there such anger towards this in so many different people. See, I think what Satan wants to do is he wants to cause us from, to drift from the actual truth that Jesus at the core changes our lives. We start to think, well, if I do this and I do this and I do this. No, no, it's not about that. It's not about what you do and how you do and these things. What it is is that if Jesus is at the core, our lives are going to be different, period. If Jesus is just, just some peripheral thing, then we're going to say, well, I have to and I have to and I have to. See, Paul doesn't say anything along the lines uh, of going, you better be careful or you might just not do enough to get where God wants you to be. He doesn't say that. Because like we said a couple weeks ago when we talked about John MacArthur, if you could lose your salvation, you would. We are not capable of holding it ourselves. That's why Jesus came. What we do see here is he's saying, if you claim to be a Christian, remember your past, Remember the price it was paid. Remember the purpose, why that price was paid. Remember who you are. Remember who you were. And remember where you're going to be. Remember those things. Hold on to those things. Don't drift from those things. As you move from having Jesus as a prominent part of your life, move him to preeminence. It's going to change the way you pray. It's going to change the way you worship. It's going to change the way that you live. It's not about whether you do this or don't do this if you're going to be saved. It's the fact that Jesus has saved you. Your life should look like it. That's it. Do our lives look like it? That is the question. See, we should pray because of who Jesus is. We should worship because of who Jesus is. We should serve because of who Jesus is. We'll talk more about that next week, and that's what Paul wrapped up there at the end with. We should give because of who Jesus is. Not because somebody tells us to, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. That he is the center, that he is the creation, he is the one who's over, he is preeminent, he is all these things. I will respond in such a way to give him glory and honor because of it all. If you have that paper, do me a favor and flip over to the message side. I'm just going to wrap up with the message version. Because I want you to hear Eugene Peterson wrote this in, in a, a simple fashion of, of this is kind of what a simple mind like myself could help understand. It says this, we look at this sun and we see God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. We're a part of that everything. He was there before any of it came into existence. 
and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organized and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he's supreme in the end. From the beginning to the end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time, you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely to the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, holy, or sorry, whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in the bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one. Every creature under heaven gets the same message. I, Paul, am a messenger of this message. So simple. So profound. And yet so deep at the same time. We look at it and I say, man, got to hold on to this message. I'm a case study for all the things that Paul talks about. This is my life, who I once was, who I am now, who I'm going to be, because Christ is who he is, that he died on the cross for me. My life should represent it. And not only my life should represent it, but I need to be a messenger of this message to others. I have two challenges for you today. First is this. Make God preeminent in your life. Move him from prominence, because people who come to church feel that God is at least prominent. Move him from prominence to preeminence. Make him number one. Make him be the filter you make decisions on. Make him the one that, that you live your life because of. Make him the reason why you serve. Make him the reason why you give. Make him the reason, not because you're told to, not because of any of those things like that that we, we balance in the scales, but because of who he is. And then, as you do that, also, make him, as a preeminent one, the most important thing you talk about. Be that messenger. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you for what you do. And God, there's a lot here, and I pray that wherever I blew it, that you cleared it up. I pray that you spoke to lives right where they need to be. I pray that you spoke into hearts right where they're at, that God, as a prominent one, that you need to be preeminent, that you need to be first in rank, not in the top five. That God, our lives should reflect that. And it's not going to be an easy thing. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be a battle we fight every day. But even as we talked about in previous weeks through this Colossians, it's through your strength and your power and your grace and your mercy this is going to happen. So we ask for those things right now. We ask for your strength. We ask for your power. We ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy. We ask you to come into our lives. Lead us, guide us, direct us. Not because we have to do something, but because we want to do something over what you've already done. You are creator, you are preeminent, you are the one that is in charge, you are the one that is over our lives. Help us to live in such a way. Not like you're some just monarchy king that, that is cool in the pictures but has no substance. But God, we want you to have all the substance in our lives. Change us to be that way. Pray it in your name. Amen. I'm going to slide over here to the pew in the corner. I would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you right now, but maybe you just need to talk to God on your own. You don't need me to do that. Maybe you just need to say, God, here's my life. Take my life and let it be. 
all for you and for your glory. Maybe that's what we need to pray. And not just pray it, but then actually apply it. Apply it as you walk out of here. Apply it as you think about, God, where can you make me? Where can you use me? Who can you use me to reach out to? What areas are that going to look like? Maybe it's here at the church, serving somewhere in the church. Maybe you have a gift you can use. Maybe it's outside the church and serving your neighbor. I don't know what it is, but God's speaking to you in that way. My challenge for you to do is respond.